The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the spring of 2011, Veronica Navarro was taking a break from an on-and-off-again relationship when she thought she'd met the man of her dreams. Little did Veronica realize, within two months, her dreams would turn into an unimaginable nightmare. Join me now as we dive into a case of a young woman who encountered mortal danger while looking for love. You'll discover... How the most dangerous people can seem the most alluring, and the lengths they'll go to, to hide a dark and disturbing past. Veronica Navarro grew up in the southern Texas city of Laredo during the early 90s. The second oldest of six children, the Navarro household was always buzzing with activity. Though Veronica got along with all of her siblings, she was especially close with her older sister, Jacqueline. From an early age, people were naturally drawn to Veronica's warmth and positivity. Those who knew her thought she was friendly, upbeat, and fun to be around. One of those rare people who could make anyone instantly feel accepted. As a teenager, Veronica would often visit her cousins who lived in East Austin. During one of her visits, Veronica took a particular interest in one of their neighbors, a boy named Chris Kashimba. Chris and Veronica shared an instant connection and quickly fell in love. After graduating high school, Veronica moved to Austin to be closer to Chris. Before long, the couple moved in together. Friends and family described their relationship as inconsistent, dating on and off so often that people could barely keep track of their relationship status. According to Veronica's sister Jacqueline, the couple mostly argued about money. But after each breakup, the pair would begin missing each other, and they'd get back together again. Inevitably, another argument would arise, and they'd break up again. In early 2011, while on another one of their breakups, Veronica met Joe Carr, a 27-year-old firefighter with the Pedernales Fire Department in Travis County, Texas. 22-year-old Veronica was charmed by Joe's likable demeanor, and they bonded over a shared interest in tattoos. Joe's side gig just happened to be tattooing, and Veronica already had several tattoos of her own. Before long, Veronica had Joe's name tattooed on her hip, surrounded by delicate hibiscus flowers. But the whirlwind romance ended as quickly as it began, and the couple broke up 
for unknown reasons. Veronica moved back in with Chris briefly, leaning on him for emotional support. She confessed to Chris, Joe got angry sometimes when he was drinking. According to Veronica, there was no way of gauging what might set him off. When his temper flared, he'd raise his voice and throw things at her. But Chris and Veronica's relationship continued to repeat the same pattern as before. After breaking up once again, Veronica just happened to run into Joe at a nightclub, and they decided to give their relationship another try. Joe, who was living in a home with his infant son in Spicewood, Texas, invited Veronica to move in with him, an offer she accepted on June 15, 2011. He even bought her a car. One of Veronica's cousins remembered her feeling excited to be able to paint and decorate a home of her own. For Veronica, it all seemed too good to be true. Her life was finally coming together. Veronica continued to keep in touch with Chris, but only through text or calling, and only when Joe was away at work. Veronica didn't feel comfortable communicating with Chris in front of Joe, because the last time he caught them exchanging messages, he lost it. However, the couple appeared to be madly in love with each other. Veronica often made posts on her Facebook page showing just how happy they were. One post expressed feeling sad to see Joe leave for work. Another post expressed excitement over planting azaleas in the flower beds of the new home. She even posted a photo on the fire station's Facebook page showing her and Joe hugging and kissing. Not long after moving in together, Joe proposed and Veronica accepted, all the while continuing ties with Chris. On June 25th, Veronica spent the day with Chris and didn't return home until the following day. She raced back early the next morning, trying to arrive home before Joe noticed she was gone. When Joe felt the hood of Veronica's car and realized it was warm, he wasn't happy. Apparently, he'd explicitly ordered her to stay home. Veronica lied and told Joe she had just popped out to the store, and his anger subsided. Later that day, Veronica announced their engagement on Facebook. From the outside, it appeared she couldn't wait to start the next exciting chapter of her life with Joe. The following afternoon, Veronica traveled to South Austin to interview for a medical assistant position at a pediatric center. Chris would later testify. He briefly saw Veronica the day right after her interview. She told him she was trying to get a new job so she could gain financial independence from her fiancé. Contrary to Veronica's happy Facebook posts, behind the scenes, she'd actually been planning her escape. She decided she was going to leave Joe in the next two weeks. She even toyed with the idea of waiting until he got drunk, lost his temper, and became physically abusive. Then she could easily justify leaving him without feeling guilty. Around 7 that evening, 
Chris checked in with Veronica and she seemed fine, but that would be the last time he'd ever hear her voice. On the morning of July 6, about a week and a half later, dock workers boating on Lake Travis, near the east end of Pace Park, made a gruesome discovery. While testing their boat's propeller, the men spotted what appeared to be a tent floating in shallow water about 10 feet from shore. As the men got closer, it looked like something was inside. When one worker touched the tent, he thought he felt a person's shoulder. As he moved his hand further down, he felt something that resembled a forearm. Then they took a small pocket knife and made a tiny incision into the material, opening it up. The dock workers' worst fears were confirmed, and they immediately called 911 to report their grim discovery. After officers from the Travis County Sheriff's Office arrived on the scene, they opened up the Coleman tent to find a badly decomposed body. The remains were wrapped several times with rope, tied in a series of complex knots. The ropes were fastened to cinder blocks and secured around several paint cans, presumably to weigh down the body. The Travis County Medical Examiner's Office conducted an autopsy to confirm the victim's gender, which was female. However, the victim was wearing what appeared to be a man's medium-sized, gray long-sleeved shirt. Unfortunately, the severity of decomposition made it extremely difficult to draw conclusions during the autopsy. Any forensic evidence had deteriorated because the body had been submerged in water and exposed to the elements for over a week. The condition of the body made it impossible to check for signs of strangulation, whether any sexual assault had occurred, and if the ropes had been tied before or after the victim's death. Through the process of elimination, the medical examiner was able to determine the victim hadn't been shot, stabbed, bludgeoned, or poisoned. A toxicology report found no alcohol or illegal drugs in her system. The only possible cause of death left was asphyxiation. There was also another disturbing discovery. The medical examiner noticed one of the victim's tattoos had been cut with some kind of sharp instrument. It appeared someone tried to remove it from her body. However, it was still intact. The tattoo read, Joe Derek Carr. When police searched through the database for missing persons, they didn't find a match for their Jane Doe. However, after running her fingerprints, they found a positive ID. It was confirmed that the deceased woman was Veronica Navarro. When police broke the heartbreaking news to the Navarro family, they were shocked and absolutely devastated. They hadn't even realized Veronica was missing. When asked if they had any idea who might have wanted to harm her, Veronica's family suspected her ex, Chris Kashimba, 
because of their rocky relationship. Police learned that Veronica had broken up with Chris and reconnected with Joe, and the two had recently gotten engaged. Had Chris felt burned one too many times and become vengeful? It seemed like a possible motive. But as police checked into Chris's alibi, an incident redirected their suspicion toward Veronica's fiancé, Joe. They discovered that on July 9th, Joe had attempted to enter Canada without a passport. He told the border officer he was traveling for a month-long vacation. The officer grew suspicious when Joe said he had $2,000 in cash saved up for the trip, but oddly had no debit or credit cards as backup. The contents of Joe's vehicle also made the border officer skeptical Joe was just visiting. His car was filled to the brim with clothes, food, and wads of cash. It appeared he'd been planning to stay far longer than he claimed. The officer wondered if Joe was a vagrant living out of his car and crossing the border to work illegally. The guard called Joe's fire hall to confirm he was actually on leave, but whoever answered the phone said he'd have to look into it but would call back. He never did. Instead, the border guard received a call from the Travis County Sheriff's Office. An investigator explained he thought Joe was attempting to run off to Canada because he was a suspect in his fiancé's murder. After being taken into custody, U.S. authorities sent Joe to jail in Pembina County, North Dakota, until he was returned to Travis County. The guard had been surprised by Joe's laid-back response. He felt it was odd Joe never asked why he was being hauled off to jail. He just went along with it. The same day, the Travis County Sheriff's Office obtained a search warrant for Joe and Veronica's home. Veronica Navarro's ID was found, stowed in a plastic storage container in the back of a closet, while paint cans identical to the ones found at the crime scene were also found. Investigators were able to determine that all the paint had been purchased from a Lowe's store in the city of Hutto in July of 2010. After a little digging, they also learned Joe had lived in Hutto that same summer, and they still found more, including part of a tent as well as a tent bag. The piece of the tent they found was identical to the one found wrapped around Veronica's body, and the tent bag had the same model number. They also came across destroyed photos of the couple in a trash can, along with some of Veronica's toiletries. Further evidence found in the home included ropes that had been tied using intricate knots, just like the ropes found binding Veronica's body. Investigators would later learn that this style of complex knot was taught during firefighter training. During their search, investigators also found a number of Joe's shirts, which happened to be the same size and style as the shirt Veronica had been wearing. Joe's bail was set at $1 million. While sitting in jail, 
Joe had a notable conversation with his mother on the phone. During the call, Joe's mother flat out asked him if he had anything to do with Veronica's death. He gave a nervous chuckle and quickly changed the subject. This bizarre reaction would be brought up later during his trial. In July 2011, Joe was charged with tampering with physical evidence in an effort to dispose of Veronica's body. By the end of September, the prosecutor indicted him for murder. If found guilty, Joe could be looking at life in prison. In February 2014, Joe's trial finally began. As he faced the jury in a courtroom full of Veronica's family and friends, he appeared calm and collected. Assistant District Attorney Amy Meredith presented all the physical evidence found at Joe's home, linking him to Veronica's murder. The prosecutor also called witnesses who cast suspicion on Joe's behavior at work in the days following Veronica's death. His actions had been out of character. Fire officials testified Joe had been a good worker since he'd been hired at the fire department in 2008, but former co-workers told the court Joe hadn't been himself on June 28, the day after prosecutors believed he had murdered Veronica. When Joe was on duty, he was by the book, diligently following protocol. But on that particular morning, Joe seemed out of it while they were en route to a call. One fellow firefighter reported he had to ask Joe four times to pass him a pair of gloves, and apparently... He'd been no help on the call either. After the crew returned to the fire hall, Joe fell into a recliner, pulled his cap down over his eyes, and fell asleep. Around 7 p.m. that night, Joe told his chief he was sick and needed to go home. Breaking the rules once again, Joe left before his replacement arrived. From that point on, he became increasingly unreliable. He didn't show up for work, and he didn't bother to call in either. When he didn't make it for his next two shifts, on July 1st and the 4th, he was given a written warning. Joe did manage to make it into work on July 5th and 6th, but apparently wasn't much help. His co-workers remembered him only playing video games and wandering around the fire hall in a daze. Joe eventually confided in his chief, that he'd been missing so much work he'd just broken up with Veronica and was afraid she'd damage his property in retaliation. The chief was in disbelief because everyone who'd ever met Veronica at the fire hall knew her to be a sweet young woman, not the type of person who'd trash someone's house. After his shift on July 6th, the same day Veronica's body was found in the lake, Joe told his co-workers he was going to a Blues on the Green concert in Austin. While there, Joe ran into a woman who worked at a convenience store close to the fire hall. The woman testified Joe was drunk and seemed preoccupied and spacey, not like his usual self. The woman said he invited her back to his house, but made her wait outside while he tidied up. When she woke up the following day, she said they exchanged numbers and Joe dropped her off at her friend's house. 
and although she tried calling him several times over the next couple of days, she said he never answered and they never spoke again. The court later learned that on July 9th, when Joe was headed off to Canada, he hadn't requested a month of leave like he had told the border guard. Instead, he just turned off his phone, got a new burner phone, withdrew $2,000 in cash, threw a bunch of clothes and food into his car, and fled. When an investigator testified that an engagement ring had been found tucked away in Joe's wallet while he was being detained at the border, a silence fell over the courtroom. It was the same ring that had been previously on Veronica's finger. In addition to accounts of Joe's strange behavior at work, the prosecution also used phone records to try and show the jury there was no doubt he was responsible for Veronica's death. An AT&T cell phone expert testified that in the early morning hours of June 28th, Joe's cell phone pinged off a number of different cell phone towers east of his home. Even though he didn't send any texts or make any phone calls, it was still possible to track his movements because his cell phone automatically registered with the towers he passed by. Maps were used to further demonstrate to the jury how cell phone tower pings revealed Joe left Spicewood, moved through Briarcliff, and then spent a long time by the cell tower that serviced the east side of Pacebend Park, close to where Veronica's body was later found. Tracing Joe's location through his cell phone movements also showed he didn't get home until around 3 a.m. on June 29th. The prosecutor argued that it was no wonder Joe was tired and not his usual self when he got to work at the fire hall later that day. Joe's phone records also revealed an interesting change in communication patterns between June 17th and June 27th. Joe and Veronica talked to each other via call or text a number of times, sometimes more than 50 times a day. But after June 27th, Joe never tried to call or text Veronica again. The assistant DA argued that it was like he somehow knew she was dead. Jurors also heard the jailhouse phone call between Joe and his mother. It was obvious he was trying to change the subject when she brought up Veronica's murder. Instead, Joe asked his mother if she was ever going to post bond, told her to wish his father a happy birthday for him, and even discussed the jail's address. At the end of the call, Joe's mother tried one more time to ask Joe what had happened. Did you do anything wrong, she asked. Joe replied, no, and after a long pause added, not today. To supplement the phone records, the prosecution also called a number of witnesses to speak out about Veronica and Joe's relationship, including several of Veronica's cousins. One after another, each of them testified that Joe was controlling and set a lot of restrictions on Veronica. After the couple moved in together, Veronica reportedly confided to her cousins that Joe wouldn't let her go anywhere or do anything. She felt trapped in the relationship and was growing more and more fearful. 
the star witness during the trial, and the person who offered the most insight into Veronica and Joe's relationship, was actually the man who had once been the prime suspect in her murder, Veronica's ex, Chris Kashimba. Chris told the jury he had stayed in close contact with Veronica after she'd left him, and even after she got engaged to Joe. He said Veronica quickly realized she'd made a big mistake by leaving him and getting involved with Joe. Joe had a serious drinking problem and a vicious temper, which led him to verbally and physically abuse her. Chris said Veronica expressed she desperately missed being with him and wanted to get back together. Chris went on to say, the only reason they spoke behind Joe's back was because Veronica was afraid of what he'd do. Chris told the court he'd spoken with Veronica one final time after her job interview, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He only became concerned after she didn't respond to any of his text messages in the days that followed. It never occurred to him to contact authorities or Veronica's family, a decision he felt haunted by, feeling he should have done something more to protect her. Throughout the trial, the prosecutor speculated that Veronica had been murdered with a plastic bag and that it occurred during an intense quarrel. Once Veronica was dead, Joe dumped her body in Lake Travis. He tried fleeing the country when his guilt started to consume him. The prosecution admitted they couldn't say with complete certainty exactly how Joe had killed Veronica due to how badly her body was decomposed. But Assistant DA Meredith said, You don't get a free pass for murder when you dump a body in a lake like trash just because you ruin all the physical evidence. Joe's defense attorney, John Carsey, didn't agree with the prosecution's version of events. Although he conceded his client had dumped Veronica's body in the lake, he claimed it was an act of sheer panic. According to Joe's attorney, Veronica had dropped dead from sudden arrhythmic death syndrome in front of Joe on the night she died. Sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, or SADS, is a rare disease of the electrical impulses of the heart that essentially causes it to misfire. While it can occur in young people like Veronica, who otherwise appear to be in good health, it mostly occurs in those who are genetically predisposed. And no member of the Navarro family had a history of SADS. The defense insisted that the prosecution hadn't been able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Joe had murdered Veronica. Both the investigators and the medical examiner didn't see any external injuries on her body. Carsey also argued that the process of elimination conducted during the autopsy was nothing short of ridiculous. The defense attorney told the jury that the prosecution needed to present convincing evidence that his client had actually murdered Veronica. Otherwise, the case would turn into nothing but a really cruddy episode of Law & Order. Carsey also argued that the prosecution could easily prove Joe panicked, got rid of his fiancé's body, 
and took off to Canada. Because he was worried, he'd be blamed for her death. He told the jury that if they were waiting for the prosecution to dish out evidence that showed Joe had murdered Veronica, you're going to find you have an empty plate. The defense went on to say there was no love triangle between his client, Veronica, and Chris. He even questioned Chris's credibility. Joe and Veronica were engaged and very much in love. This was evident from Veronica's Facebook posts. The defense explained that Veronica's death was nothing more than a tragic medical incident and that throwing Joe in prison wouldn't bring her back. But the Travis County jury wasn't buying that Veronica had randomly died from SADS. In the end, it took them less than an hour to deliberate. On Tuesday, February 11th, 2014, Joe Carr was found guilty of murder. When the verdict was read, Joe sat motionless with his eyes closed. His mother, seated in the back row of the courtroom, bowed her head. On the other side of the courtroom, where three rows of Veronica's friends and family sat, there was a different reaction. Tears of relief that Veronica's murderer had finally been convicted. The trial had been an emotionally difficult journey for the Navarros. They wept in court when the prosecution showed photos of Veronica's body. It was also difficult for Veronica's loved ones to hear the defense try to argue she hadn't even been murdered. When reporters asked Veronica's family what kind of sentence they thought Joe should receive, they answered by saying that if he didn't spend the rest of his life behind bars, justice wouldn't be served. Veronica's sister Jacqueline said she hoped for a life sentence. She went on to say, we know she's never going to come back, but she didn't deserve to die that way. In front of a packed courtroom, the three-hour hearing delved deeply into a topic that had only been mentioned during Joe's trial. It was then it came to light that Joe had an extensive record of abusing women. He'd been charged with assault and domestic violence dating back to 2003. A number of women who'd been in relationships with Joe took the stand. They testified he was controlling, abusive, and struggled with serious alcohol and anger issues. Past girlfriends told the court Joe was extremely jealous and tried moving their relationships along quickly with grand gestures. The judge heard how within weeks of meeting one woman, he had offered to buy her a car and proposed marriage, similar to what he'd done with Veronica. The prosecution argued that Joe actually did these things in an attempt to control women. A former girlfriend recalled trying to get out of a first date with Joe after smelling alcohol in his breath. Before she could get away, Joe pushed her to the ground, forcefully kissed her, and bit her lip. Although she managed to get away and file a restraining order, Joe violated the order and continued to harass her. However, she never pressed charges because she said she was too afraid of him. 
Joe's friends and co-workers told the court, whenever they saw Joe and his ex-wife together, he was rude and aggressive towards her. Joe's ex testified, he often called her names, told her how to act, and constantly demanded her undivided attention. His ex-wife also shared a horrific incident that involved extreme animal cruelty. He felt the love she showed her two dogs was more than the love she expressed to him. After severely maiming one, he then killed both of them in front of her. In closing arguments, Joe's defense lawyer asked the judge to use his experience and reasonable judgment to consider a full range of penalties. Carsey claimed Joe was a good person who'd just been fighting a long battle with alcoholism. But Assistant DA Meredith said Veronica's case was one of the most horrific the state has ever encountered. She told the judge Joe lived to control women. He had no regard for women whatsoever and wasn't about to change his ways. After weighing all the testimony presented at the hearing, Travis County Judge Cliff Brown sentenced Joe Carr to 60 years in prison for the murder of Veronica Navarro and 20 years for evidence tampering. The judge ordered the sentences to be served concurrently. Joe didn't react when he heard the sentence. Both the Navarro family and the prosecution wanted Joe to get life in prison. However, Veronica's mom seemed to accept the sentence Joe received. She told reporters, I'm happy that he got what he deserved. My daughter, I know she is watching from heaven. Veronica's cousin reflected on all she'd learned from the trial and how she might have done things differently had she known. I mean, it was a routine he did over and over again. And the fact that I saw this routine on my cousin and couldn't stop it, it affected me a lot. <laughs> Because I saw the same things being offered to her. And if I would have met these women that were lucky enough to get out that relationship, I would have pulled my cousin out as well. I mean, I, we weren't that lucky, but at least we stopped them. Since being sentenced, Joe has filed multiple appeals. In one appeal, Joe claimed there wasn't enough proof to show he tampered with evidence or committed the murder at all. The court documents filed by Joe's attorney also claimed that the trial court abused its discretion by admitting and excluding evidence and by denying his motion for a new trial. In February 2016, the Third Court of Appeals rejected Joe's argument and denied his appeal. The court stated, We cannot say that a reasonable jury could not have found beyond a reasonable doubt that the appellant killed Navarro, then tampered with her body by wrapping it in a tent and submerging her. Joe appealed his sentence again, citing a handful of reasons, including errors in the chain of custody. He was innocent, his sentence was excessive, and Veronica's cause of death was never determined. In August of 2018, the courts dismissed Joe's appeal once again. The appeals court ruled 
that Joe had missed his window to file the appeal. Federal law had established a one-year statute of limitations for state inmates seeking federal habeas corpus relief. Joe had filed his appeal nine months late. The court also added that just by saying he didn't kill Veronica wasn't enough evidence to prove Joe was actually innocent. In their opinion, a review of the case showed there was plenty of evidence to prove his guilt. Veronica's friends and family have said there isn't a day that passes they don't miss her. Her mother said when Veronica was killed, she lost a wonderful daughter and the world lost a loving person. She said Veronica was very friendly, like a warm soul. You'd really like to hang around with her and she'd always make you feel special. Her older sister Jacqueline said Veronica was like so many women before her. She just picked the wrong man and had fallen prey to abuse from someone who claimed to love her. For the Navarros, learning about Joe's long history of deceit and abusing women was shocking. They wondered if Veronica's death could have been prevented if Joe had been viewed as a serious threat to women. More than anything, Veronica's loved ones wished they could have done more to keep her safe. Sadly, what happened to Veronica is a tragic outcome for thousands of women and men every year worldwide. According to UN Women, in 2017, 30,000 women were killed by either a current or former intimate partner. And it's a growing problem silenced by fear. Thankfully, there are organizations around the world working to educate, spread awareness, and provide support and resources to victims and survivors of domestic violence, shining a light on a dark issue and breaking the silence. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following Patreon supporters. April G., Jamie A., and Casey M. And now I'd like to introduce a new podcast from a good friend of ours. Javier Leva from Pretend has started a new podcast called Criminal Conduct, and his co-host is John Taylor from Twisted. Javier gave us a hand with the Bocas del Toro murders episode, and we are so excited about his new project. And here's Javier. Thanks, Tyler. My co-host and I have a new investigative true crime podcast called Criminal Conduct. It's a serialized story about the death of Michelle O'Connell. But this isn't just a story of one woman's death. Years after she died, someone started asking questions, and that person was murdered. This story is a murder within a murder. And now, we're picking up the investigation where he left off. Check out the promo for Criminal Conduct.
Hey! Please, send my girlfriend. I think she just shot herself. Ma'am, I need you to calm down. Listen to me. Sir, listen. Hang on. Let me tell you the truth. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. This is Jeremy Banks. His girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, her death was officially ruled a suicide. But not everyone believes the sheriff's conclusion. Then, a private citizen named Eli Washtock began investigating her case. But before he could finish, he was murdered. We're picking up where Eli Washtock left off. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct, Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Download Criminal Conduct wherever you listen to podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. With his pen of mind, madness. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm not prepared to run. 